Hi, everyone. We are continuing through our series on the book of Revelation. It's the final book of the Bible, and we're in the early chapters, actually, currently moving through what I'm calling Jesus's apocalyptic love letters to seven different churches in kind of Asia Minor. And each of these letters have a lot to teach us. And as one commentator noted, moving through the letters early on in Revelation is really, really helpful because it helps us to sort of begin to inhabit and get familiar with John's apocalyptic style. And that's really going to help us as we move deeper into Revelation and come to some passages that are really complicated, very confusing, very easy to misinterpret. This is a, a nice on-ramp to begin helping us acclimatize to what we've talked about in the last few weeks, which is one of the unique features of this book is that it's apocalyptic literature. It's a specific genre of biblical text that is that uses symbolism and numbers in a very heavy way, not to convey things that aren't true, to reinforce uh, deeply important truths in a way that isn't just um, conveyed through the dissemination of, of mere information. So it leverages symbols and numbers to really drive home a point. Today we're looking at Jesus's message to the church in Smyrna. In verse 8, we read the greeting. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So Jesus is writing to this church. Sorry, not writing, he's speaking. John's going to be recording. And the church of Smyrna, just for some background, likely founded during Paul's third missionary journey, which occurs in Acts chapter 19. Smyrna is a, a really proud and beautiful city. It has a long history. It's been destroyed and rebuilt that happened about 300 years before the message was given to John here in um, on Patmos. And after that destruction, the city had sort of rebuilt itself and metaphorically arose from the ashes. And that was a huge part of its civic identity and civic pride. So it knew something about dying and rising. It eventually... Uh, built a really famous stadium and library and public theater. Its public theater was actually the largest in Asia. And Smyrna claimed to be the birthplace of the great epic poet Homer. And so Smyrna had this contentious rivalry and relationship with the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was technically the largest city in Asia Minor at that time, 250,000 population. But Smyrna kind of marketed itself as first, the most important, the most influential. Whether it was or not is disputed by historians, but there are even coins that were minted in Smyrna that said, first of Asia in beauty and size. So being first and being the most prominent was really, really important to Smyrnerians. I don't know how you would describe people who live in Smyrna. And look at how Jesus begins his message to the words of him who is the first and the last who died and rose again, right? Coming in first, being someone who has experienced a death and resurrection. These are 
real immediate visceral touch points to any Gentile Roman uh, hearing this message who's become a Christian and follower of Jesus in a first century context. They value being first. Um, they have a strong history in their um, civic bones of dying and rising. And I think this is important just to note because I think it shows us a general truth that Jesus always reveals himself in a contextually sensitive way to his church and to his people. This is kind of the whole point of the incarnation, that when God fully discloses who he is, he comes as a human being. It's not just mere information. It's not just the words of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that means that Jesus doesn't take a one-size-fits-all approach as it relates to leading churches or even individual Christians. There's huge overlap. There's going to be lots of common themes and principles that Jesus is going to lead individuals and churches into. But every church's journey is unique. Every Christian's journey is unique, right? Uh, I think that's really important to understand and to anticipate that each of our discipleship journeys is individualized to a certain extent. But if you think about it, of course it would be, because you're dealing with Jesus, who is the shepherd, who knows the sheep, and all the uh, individual nuance and idiosyncrasies, and he knows all the dimensions of who we are individually that uh, we're not even all, always fully cognizant of. And that means he wants to deal with us in a way that is personal and unique. And so no two Christian lives are the same. No two Christian journeys are the same. Thank God for that. That's why we learn so much from hearing each other's stories and sharing with each other how God has worked in this particular circumstance in our lives. I think it's really, really important to remind ourselves that Christianity isn't simply a process of soul-suffocating conformity uh, in an ever-narrowing spiritual space where we all come out with, to be the same thing. We all come out to be hands or eyes. No, throughout the New Testament, the church is likened to a body of many diverse, uh, different parts that have different functions. They're gifted and called to be used in different ways so that in its totality, it brings glory to God by being a witness to his kingdom advancing diversity. But there's not only a nod here to the Gentile Romans with Jesus's opening statement. There's also a deep connection to Christians who have come from a Jewish background and embraced Jesus as their Messiah. The title, the first and the last is repeated throughout the book of Isaiah Right? This is an echo of the words that God uses to describe himself uh, through the prophet. In Isaiah 41, for example, God says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am first and will be the last. Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first, I am the last. Now, what's the larger significance? I mean, you kind of have an allusion to Jewish uh, you know, believers who have come from a Jewish background with the nod to Isaiah. You've got a, a kind of a, a hook for Gentile believers. 
who are familiar with this theme of being first and wanting to um, be a part of the story about dying and rising. But what is Jesus getting at when he says, I am the first and the last? It's actually really striking. And it should give everyone who's listening pause. Because the word that Jesus uses for first is protos, from which we get prototype. And the word that he uses for last is eschatos, from which we get eschaton, or the culmination of all things. Jesus is saying, I'm the prototype upon which everything is based, and I'm the point, I'm the telos, I'm the goal to which everything culminates. I'm the source. I am the goal. All of reality is about me. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that you as an individual, you can never actually truly understand who you are, why you're here. You're not going to be able to make sense of all the things that have happened to you and why they've happened outside of understanding who Jesus is, and more importantly, outside of having a, a communal relationship with him. Because he is the source and goal of all things, including your life. You were made for him and by him. You're meant to sustain your life in him. And so it's only when we yield ourselves to him that all the different pieces of our identity begin to cohere together and we have that, ah, this is it. I get it now. There's fundamental ontological identity formation that is only possible in Jesus because he is the first and the last. He is the protos and the eschatos. He is the source and the goal of all things. Powerful way to start a message. Verse 9 Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, and are a synagogue of Satan. Now, a lot is happening in this verse, and we have to understand a little bit about the socio-political context of Smyrna in order to get the most out of this verse. So, Smyrna attained kind of a special status among Roman cities and the celebration of what we talked about the last few weeks, the imperial cult. Uh, in 195 BC, so about th uh, 300 years before um, the, the revelation here in uh, to John, Smyrna became the first city in the ancient world to build a temple in honor of Dea Roma, the goddess Rome, you know, elevating the, the nation state and the empire to this divine status. And later, about 23 years before the birth of Christ, Smyrna won permission over and against 10 other Asian cities to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius. So Smyrna had a historically rooted, very strong alignment and allegiance and deference to Rome and spent a lot of time and energy and money signaling that it wanted to be seen as a city which genuinely which thoroughly exalts Rome and the emperor. So that, that was sort of in the culture if you had grown up in Smyrna. But there was also a very large Jewish population that was certainly resistant to that message of, of deifying any, uh, any person, place, or thing other than God. 
But this Jewish population was really hostile to Christians. Why? Well, there's a few common sense reasons. Number one, at this point in the first century, Christians are winning many Jews over to the belief that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Uh, Christians were also persecuted by the Jewish community because they were seen as blasphemous for worshiping Jesus as God, for proclaiming that he was God. But there was a political dimension as well. And that was in the context of the imperial cult where everybody had to give um, reverential deference and worship the emperor. Jews were um, given a pass on this. They were exempted from emperor worship. And Christians were early on seen as just kind of a a sect within uh, Judaism. So the political angle was the Jewish community or some within the Jewish community were very concerned that if these Christians built a large following and they started saying, Hey, we don't worship anybody but Jesus. Then Rome was going to start realizing, you know, we can't just keep handing out these exemptions for emperor worship. We're just going to take them all back, including the exemption against uh, the exemption for uh, the Jews. So the growth of the church uh, was seen as a threat on many levels to the early Jewish community. And the Jews wanted to keep their protect, uh, to keep all of their religious protections under Rome. So, you know, Smyrna, what, what, what Christians were experiencing in the city was the Jewish community sort of slandering them, throwing them under the bus, um, spreading false rumors about them so that any energy directed towards Christians by the Roman um, leadership was negative and persecutorial in nature. So think about this context. You've got Gentile pagans deeply loyal to Rome and the empire on one side. You've got a Jewish community deeply embittered against you on the other. It doesn't take too much of an imagination to realize how exceptionally difficult it would have been for a Christian in a Christian community to live in Smyrna. Christians were viewed as anti-Jewish, anti-Roman. You're a beleaguered minority. You are heavily marginalized. You are socially marginalized, politically marginalized, and economically marginalized. Jesus says, I see your affliction and your poverty. Those go together. It's not just affliction, but it's affliction and poverty. This is happening holistically to this community. And the word affliction means, sorry, uh, the Greek word is thlipsis. And it can be translated as tribulation or hardship. But um, some commentators note that sort of the, um, the thrust of the word is trying to capture this idea of crushing pressure that results in this poverty, that they're just being pressured from the outside and suffocated in this antagonistic environment where they're trying to be faithful to Jesus. But in one sense, everywhere they turn, they're finding resistance at, at, at best and persecution at worst. And even just making a living was economically incredibly difficult. And in some cases, not at all possible. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know the slander. I know what, what this, this, um, these people who think they're Jews, but they're only Jews outwardly, not of the heart. 
like Paul talks about in Romans, he says, I, I see the way you're being mistreated. I see the pressure you're under, the spiritual pressure, the physical pressure, the emotional pressure, the economic pressure. And then Jesus says what? Well, what do you hope Jesus would say in that context? If you're a Christian living in Smyrna, what do you want Jesus to follow up with after he says, I see your thlipsis. I see the crushing pressure that you're under, the poverty and the way you've been faithful to me. I mean, that's the inference. There's no condemnation of anything to the church in Smyrna in this, um, in this address. What do you think they were expecting to hear? What do you think they were longing to hear? What would you long to hear from Jesus? I know what I'd want to hear. I'd want to hear Jesus saying, I see a pressure and I'm going to lift it. I'm coming to the rescue, baby. My disciples, especially awesome ones like you guys, ones that are so faithful, that are living in this um, literal pressure cooker, that are who are subjected to all kinds of difficulty and danger, you know what? I'm going to give you a special dispensation. I'm going to insulate you from the pressures of a broken, rebellious, decaying society around you. That's what I would want Jesus to say. That's what I would hope the message is to me and my church. But what does Jesus say? Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's heavy. That's probably not the message they were hoping to hear. There's no deliverance promised for them. And it's made clear, for some of them at least, it's going to get worse before it gets better. There's not going to be a rescue for some of them from this crushing pressure. Now, now pressure can come into our lives for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we find ourselves under crushing pressure because we're the ones making careless, wrong uh, ungodly choices, right? I mean, I think right away to ways early in my life, I ignored and rejected God's instructions on how to, um, how to use my finances, uh, wisely and to the glory of God. I essentially was looking for ways to reinforce and rationalize just spending money on myself and giving God and other people the crumbs. And that led to all kinds of pressure being put on me. But that pressure was because of my own sinful, foolish decisions. Day after day, I'm not prioritizing giving. I'm not saving wisely. I'm not even asking myself hard questions about what I'm spending my money on and why and whether I should as a steward of God's resources. I'm just kind of living and then the debt's racking up and then I'm kind of not really sure what's coming in and going out. And I'm living with this low level, well, it starts low, but then it increases level of anxiety. And it's all related to the fact that I'm completely out of sync with how God wants me to live 
and honor him with my finances. And the Holy Spirit is increasingly bringing convictional pressure to bear in my heart, trying to teach and train me away from these patterns. And then you reach a breaking point. And, you know, that's a pressure that we can feel as a Christian. But that's a pressure that comes from when we're consistently disobeying God or resisting God in a certain area of our life. But that's not the kind of pressure that was being applied to this church because they weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't out of step with God's will for them in any way that Jesus felt he needed to correct them. The pressure that they were experiencing was the pressure that comes from consistently making wise, right, God-honoring choices. Paul warned Timothy in the second letter, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And hopefully, you and I know that pressure as well. Hopefully, we know the pressure that comes from striving to obey God, but being surrounded by people who either don't hold that as a value, maybe they're more ambivalent towards it, or they're actively trying to kind of move us away from that trajectory, right? We, we know what it's like to seek to honor God at school and to be surrounded by people who couldn't care less about God or to be seeking to honor God at work or in your family or on your sports team. And you can fill in the blank, but there's a pressure that comes into our lives, not because we're disobeying God, but because we're obeying God and we're doing the right thing. And that's the pressure this church in Smyrna is experiencing. They're staying faithful to Jesus with their whole lives. And as a result, there is an increasing pressure from anti-Christ forces around them. And this kind of pressure is sort of more or less inevitable if we follow Jesus well. Will it always be um, lead to death? No, not always. Um, but God never guarantees that if we are faithful to him, he's going to make everyone around us just kind of more amenable and agreeable to our faith. There's always going to be a friction as we seek to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And even as we try and love our neighbors as ourselves, there's going to be a friction from certain people around us who are going to at least resist that movement or, worst case scenario, actively fight against it. Verse 11, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. One of the things you'll notice is that in each of these messages to each of these seven churches, it ends with a promise that connects with the dimension of God's full restoration of all things in a new heavens and new earth, which we read about in the last two chapters of Revelation. So here, what Jesus promises to those who overcome is that they will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, what is the second death? Well, later in Revelation, we'll come to it, but later in Revelation, we learn that the second death refers to the final state of full condemnation that awaits anyone who rejects and ignores God and who refuses to accept the rescue 
or salvation that's available in Jesus. Now think about this. To a community of Christians facing imminent death, Jesus says, I want you to stay faithful to me even unto death. Jesus' encouragement to them is that this is the only death they're ever going to have to face. This will be it. Everything on the other side of this death is going to be glorious and good, and they're going to step into eternal life. They'll, nothing else will ever threaten them again. The second and the more severe death will never touch them. I think it's important for me to say that only Jesus can save you from the second death. Because only Jesus, as he revealed to John in Revelation 1, holds the keys to death. Only Jesus is the author of life. The Bible says that salvation is found in no other name, and it consistently shows and tells us that salvation can't be secured in any other way, and certainly not self-righteously, meaning I will try and be right enough good enough, noble enough, sincere enough, you fill in the blank, I will be enough to secure my own assurance of eternal life. And that's why the Bible again and again points us to Jesus and says, this is the rescuer. He is, yes, Lord, but he's also Savior. He's the saving one. So we need to turn to him. And if you haven't done so, it's important to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't understand all the ramifications for my life, but I believe that you are Lord and Savior, and I want you to save me from sin's power and sin's penalty. I want you to give me eternal life. Jesus turns Jesus' message to this church, as he says, he uses interesting language. He says, to him who is victorious. The word there in Greek is nikeo, and it means to be victorious or to conquer or to triumph. And it's related to the noun Nike, which means victory, right? Ring any bells, right? Famous shoe company, Nike, encourages people to just do it. But what is Nike's brand? Well, they, they are continually everything, all their marketing, reinforcing the virtue of athletic victory and dominance, conquering, triumphing, coming in first, victory, victory, victory. So maybe we can picture Jesus speaking courage into this beleaguered church who maybe for the first time in their history is really tempted to give up, really tempted to kind of take their foot off the gas pedal of discipleship and faithfulness to Jesus. And Jesus says, guys, just do it. Just do it with regard to ongoing faithfulness. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Yes, you're taking a beating. I see it. I'm not blind to all the hardships that you're going through. And I understand that right now it looks like you're losing, but things are not what they seem. I'm in your corner and I'm going to push you to triumph over the forces, exerting all this crushing pressure on you. And the way you're going to overcome these forces isn't by violently fighting back. It's by staying faithful to me, even if that costs you your life. 
Wow, that, that's quite a call. Now, some people read the end of each of these letters, you know, to him who overcomes, dot, dot, dot. And they get a little bit confused because they wonder, what is Jesus implying when he talks about those who overcome throughout these letters? Because it kind of sounds like he's saying, okay, I'm speaking to my church, people who I thought were saved, but if you overcome, you get entry into heaven or the some reward in heaven. And if you don't overcome, then you're not going to get into heaven. So kind of, is Jesus saying that like we're kind, like we're half saved, but if we kind of really show through our lives that we're faithful, that our efforts secure our salvation? And that is one way that Christians can get tripped up through a wrong reading of these texts. Maybe especially in this letter to Smyrna, where it seems to infer if you overcome, you get access to heaven. If you don't, you will uh, face the second death. But it's important to understand all of the endings in, um, in, in the pattern that emerges when we study them all. Um, the lose loss of salvation view way of reading these texts would argue that, well, uh, the promises are written to believers to encourage them to overcome, because if they don't overcome, they're going to lose their salvation. So a failure to overcome results in a loss of salvation. But, you know, hopefully we all have enough familiarity with the central gospel proclamation and uh, a, at least a cursory knowledge enough of the New Testament to realize, well, that doesn't make any sense because isn't one of the, isn't part of the foundational good news that believers are saved and secured by the finished work of Jesus? Meaning, it's Jesus's faithfulness that saves us, not our own. It's Jesus's faithfulness that keeps us saved, not our own good works. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, this is kind of Christianity 101. Paul says to the Ephesians, it's by grace you've been saved through faith by putting your trust in Jesus. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. Paul is saying, everything you have, your salvation, which is a big word, which means all of the spiritual rest and security and assurance and eternal life that you have in Christ, that results completely from God. You don't top it up. He doesn't, it's not like a 50-50 thing. God gets you 90% of the way and you kind of put it over the top through your own efforts. He says, it's not the result of works so that no one can boast. No one's going to end up in heaven and say, I did this. So what's going on here? Well, in most of these letters, the promises that link overcoming link it to specific rewards, uh, like getting access to hidden manna or right to the tree of life or a special white stone or special white garments. So they're not so much about one's eternal destiny as they are about one's eternal rewards. One of the truths that maybe we don't emphasize as much in the modern church because we don't want it to lead to a sense that there are different classes of Christians, but it's a truth. I think that, I think this is a biblical truth, but I think we avoid it for that reason. And that truth is this. 
Everyone who turns to Jesus is equally saved. But not every Christian is equally rewarded in the life of the age to come. And, and I think we avoid that truth that is, I, I think, uh, clear as day when you read through the Gospels and the uh, the rest of the New Testament. But we avoid it because we don't want to kind of um, incubate and, and give a lot of a fuel to this idea that, well, there's different classes of Christians. And of course, there isn't in the sense that we are all God's family. There's no favoritism. No one can boast. We're all saved by grace. But that's different than asking the question, does God reward his children differently in response to their level of obedience through their life? And I think the answer to that question is clearly yes. God doesn't love different children differently. He loves his children the same, but rewards are dependent on one's cooperation with God, right? Salvation is completely the result of God's effort on our behalf. We just have to receive it as a gift. But the rewards that await us, some in this life, but most in the life of the age to come, those are dependent on the extent to which we cooperate with God in the transformation into greater Christ-likeness and obedience to God and greater faithfulness to the most important thing that Jesus said, which is to love God with every part of who you are and to bring that love to bear on your neighbors. Bring bring the same uh, um, care and concern and support on the life of your neighbor and those around you that you would uh, expect to others to bring on yourself. I mean, Jesus said that, I mean, Matthew 16, 27, Jesus is referring to his second coming, this final judgment. And he says, the son of man referring to himself, right? That's a title coming out of the old Testament. He says, the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus says it as clear as you could say it right there. Everyone's saved who have who've turned their lives over to Jesus, but not everyone's going to be rewarded equally. Jesus is going to reward each person according to what they have done, right? We can imagine, just think about this life. We can see and imagine, if we pay attention, that there are differences in the blessings that get experienced between a Christian who is consistently seeking to grow and learn and repent and confess and lean into their walk with Christ in an ever, um, with deeper devotion and more genuineness and greater faithfulness and obedience versus someone who turns their life over to Jesus, um, sincerely uh, wants to be saved, is saved, and then they kind of putter through life and kind of maybe just float down the course of their life doing the bare minimum. They're not asking questions. They're not deepening in prayer. They're not looking how to um, give of their time sacrificially. They're not looking how to strengthen the church. They're just kind of like they're saved. They're okay with it. And they kind of do devotions once in a while. Are both of those people saved? Well, that's a condition of the heart, but let's presume they are, right? Uh, yes. Are they both equally loved by God? Yes. But is God going to reward both of those believers equally in this life? Likely not. 
in the next? Definitely not. Because when the Son of Man returns, he is going to reward each person according to what they have done in terms of their productivity, in terms of faithfully living out Jesus' call on their life. Just like Jesus teaches that the punishment and judgment of hell will be more tolerable for some than others on the final day of judgment, so he teaches that the rewards of heaven will be more for those who, through their life and witness, serve Jesus with increasing devotion and faithfulness. Right? As a parent, I love all my kids. All my kids, excuse me, all my kids are part of my family. And my kids should never fear being disowned for any reason. But my kids will tell you, they are not equally rewarded and neither are they equally disciplined. That's a case-by-case basis. I would love to reward them all the time, but I only reward them dependent on certain behaviors. If they're displaying care and thoughtfulness and self-discipline and integrity and hard work, I'm looking for ways to reward them and to honor that so that that grows. But if they're going in a different direction, I'm not rewarding um, one of my children who are being uh, whiny and rebellious and obstinate and rude to their siblings because, well, I rewarded their other sibling for being good. It's No, like one gets rewards and one gets discipline, hopefully so that they course correct so that I can reward them. But we understand as parents that while we want to bless all of our kids, there are just going to be certain blessings that are going to be withheld unless we see a cooperation from our children with us, with wisdom, generally speaking, and even with God. And I think that's what Jesus is saying at the end of these letters. If you overcome, then there's going to be a unique reward that you're going to gain access to. So don't give up. See, that's why when you understand that all Christians are equally saved, but not all Christians are equally rewarded, there's a lot of other texts in the New Testament that you'll begin to say, oh, that, that makes sense then, right? 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? And then he says, run in such a way that you win. Paul's like, okay, you're saved. You're running a race. You've got your lane. You're going to finish the race. God's going to complete the work that he's begun in you. But like run and don't just run, run to win. Like Paul says, why would you as a Christian be like, I'm going to race, gun goes off. I'm just going to start walking. Like it, I'll just do this at my own pace. It's I'm good. Paul's like, no, you do not understand the rewards that God has for those who push themselves to kingdom excellence. Again, this is not about being perfect. This is not about earning God's love. It's just real talk about saying, there are certain rewards, both in this life and in the life of the age to come, that are contingent upon our obedience and our cooperation with God. And so time and again, the New Testament, and here we're seeing it in Jesus's letters to all of these churches, he says, I want you to overcome. I want you to just do it. Keep moving forward. Keep being faithful. So today, if you're listening to this and you're, you're feeling crushing pressure in your life and you're feeling poverty 
Maybe it's economic poverty, but maybe it's emotional poverty. Maybe it's poverty of spirit, but you're just feeling empty. Or maybe you're experiencing the pressure. Like maybe that pressure is coming because you are being faithful to Jesus, but you're just drained and you're tempted to just kind of just ease up a little bit, slow down the pace a little bit to accommodate your spouse or your coworkers or other people in the church, other people in your small group, people in your family. I want to echo Jesus's challenge to you and say, go after the victory. Continue in faithfulness. Keep pursuing, keep growing, keep praying, keep learning, keep adapting, keep confessing and repenting. Run your race and run it well and run to win. Even if every other Christian around you is walking, you don't don't have to condemn them or anything. Just don't pattern your life off of them. Look to those who are running and saying, I'm going to learn from them. And I'm going to try and run the best race that I can. And run your race and don't give up, even if your faithfulness to Jesus is causing that pressure. When you saying no to this causes pressure, or when you start saying, I'm going to start prioritizing this, and that causes pressure from people around you, don't give up. Keep going. Be an overcomer. Lean into victory. Understand that Jesus wants you to be a conqueror by staying faithful to him. He sees you. He knows the crushing pressure that you're facing. And because of that, he will reward you. And I believe that will come both in this life and in the life to come. Your labor is not in vain. Stay faithful. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you remember that Jesus sees and knows the pressure you're living under. And may you stand under that pressure in his power, even if the cost is great, and even if you have to stand alone. And may you run your race to get a reward and not just to finish. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. God bless.